0: Our scripture this morning comes from the the book of Colossians, we're in chapter 2, we're going to read verses 8 through 15. So Colossians 2, beginning with verse 8 and then going through verse 15, and I also want to look at Romans 6. So if you just, from Colossians, take a left, a few books, you'll land on Romans chapter 6, verse 5. Or verse 3, Colossians 2, Romans 6. Let's stand together as we read God's word. Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity Who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us the tresp- our, all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Romans chapter 6. beginning with verse 3. Do you know? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism unto death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You may be seated and let's take a few minutes to reflect together on God's word. Okay, so it's been a few weeks since we've studied Colossians, so I want to review before we move forward to try to sort of uh, reestablish what we've known in the fall as we uh, get through the rest of the book in the winter and the spring. Colossae is a suburb city. It's a suburb city outside the great city of Ephesus. Ephesus was the crown jewel of the Roman Empire. It, It sat on the edge of the Aegean Sea. And so as it sat on the edge of the Aegean Sea, all the, the, the trade moved east to west or west to east, east through uh, Ephesus. Uh, sitting in the middle of Ephesus, you could see it from a, a great distance, was one of the great wonders of the ancient world called the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana. It was larger than a football field. And, and in the middle of this temple area was this multi-breasted female figure and she was the fertility goddess. So if you needed anything, that, that you needed something to grow, whether you needed a, a child, you needed crops, you needed finances, you needed any kind of growth in your life, you'd go to this temple, you'd make particular sacrifices, and then apparently that was supposed to come true. So we have the temple, this thing that's larger than a football field. It's sitting there. It's huge. It's circling the edges of the temple were tourist shops and prostitutes, everybody trying to make a sale. And Ephesus was a spiritually dark place. It was full of crystals and idol worship, secret sayings, magic spells, sexual perversion and greed. And as you might imagine, it being the leading city, what what started in Ephesus never stayed in Ephesus. It always spilled out into the suburb cities. One of those was Colossae. And we know from Acts chapter 19 that Paul went on one of his missionary journeys, and he stopped in Ephesus. And while he was there, he's in this public hall, and he taught the Bible. He had basically a Bible 101 class for two years with the Apostle Paul. Imagine being able to sit in that class. So every day for two years, he sits in this public forum, and he preaches the gospel. And people are transformed. They're, they're called out of darkness and into the light. Of Christ, and one of the practical challenges Paul faced with this new group of converts, this, this group that was going to form this church plant, one of his practical practical um, difficulties was what we call syncretism. Meaning, I'm coming out of the dark and I'm going into the light, I've practiced these mystical beliefs, and now I see Christ and I want to move towards Christ, but one of the practical problems they had was, well, but I still want to hold on to my old beliefs. And what I want to do is take some of these old beliefs, and, and in a syncretistic way, we, I want to merge these two things now into a, a third thing. I've got some of my mystical beliefs, I've got Jesus, and now I'm really moving forward. And Paul was trying to say, hey, once you have the fullness of Jesus Christ, you don't need anything else. But it's very difficult for them to let go of their old beliefs. And I think we can all be sympathetic with that. And when you come to Christ, it is hard ...to let go of things, especially if your whole culture, if your whole family history has been steeped in one way of believing. I'll never forget uh, in the 1980s. Unfortunately, many of you have missed the 1980s, I can see, by your age. But I was uh, in my 20s in the 1980s, and I I won't forget uh, President Ronald Reagan and his wife Nancy... ...who were members of a Presbyterian church in California when the newspapers broke that Nancy consulted an astrologer in order to plan the president's schedule. So here's this person who was involved in a Presbyterian church in California, member of a Presbyterian church in California, now bringing an astrologer to the White House. And the chief of staff at that point said this, the astrologer set the time for summit meetings, presidential debates, Reagan's cancer surgery, State of the Union addresses, and much more. Without an okay from the astrologer, Air Force One didn't take off. So I think we can be sympathetic that it's hard if you have a certain kind of belief, if you're holding on to something, that when you get called out of that, it, it's, it's hopefully going to be left behind, but it's difficult. It's difficult to leave some of that behind when you, when you have certain belief systems And Paul's way of combating that is this prayer, part of this prayer that I read for our prayer time this morning. This comes from Ephesians chapter 3. This is what he says. I pray that you have power. Again, he's speaking into this congregation that are full of this occult, mystical, astrology, idol worship. I'm praying that you would have power. So he's directly going against this power at this temple. And I'm hoping that you have a different kind of power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And that you might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So what Paul is doing, he's saying, I understand you have competitors in your heart. You and I have competitors to God in our heart. And he's trying to say, if you would just expand your understanding of the love of Christ, the knowledge of God, then, then that, uh, that tidal wave into your soul is going to eradicate all the other competitors. So he's really trying to just fill them up with the Lord, knowing that once you're full of the Lord, then the things that you were holding on to this, into, onto in this world begin to loosen their grip. During Paul's two-year Bible study, a young man named Epaphras was transformed by the power of the gospel, by the power of Paul's preaching. And Epaphras says, hey, I've been transformed. I'd like my family to know what what I just discovered. And he is from a little town outside of Ephesus called Colossae. And so he goes back, and he's the first evangelist. He's the the church planter that comes back and, and introduces his little town to the gospel. And apparently the practical challenges of this religious syncretism spilled out of Ephesus and into Colossae as well. And you get a sense of it here in chapter 2. Look at uh, chapter 2 verse 6. Paul saying, "Therefore you've received Christ." See, you've been you've been you've, you've gotten Christ, so walk in him. He's your he's your new foundation. And do everything according to Christ. You, you have a new foundation. You need to move in a different direction. Verse 8, don't be taken captive by empty philosophy, philosophies or mystical practices like astrology. See, Paul's concern is he knew religious counterfeits would come into the church and try to take people captive like slave traders would. That they would come into the church and they would try to take you captive. And the way that a religious counterfeit started by taking you captive was usually it had a two-pronged approach. It either said, or maybe both, that Jesus wasn't supreme, so you needed something else plus Jesus, or he wasn't sufficient. Jesus isn't supreme, or Jesus isn't sufficient. And once you realize that Jesus isn't supreme or he isn't sufficient, then you can look around for something else and you get this religious counterfeit. And that's what Paul is battling against. He's trying to say, no, Jesus is supreme and Jesus is sufficient. And we see how Paul attacks this in verse nine for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You just can't say it more clearly than that. He is supreme. This is a, a one-sentence Reader's Digest version of chapter 1, verse 15 through verse 19. He is the image of the invisible God. When Paul gives this great hymn, remember when we talked about that in, uh, back in uh, verse 15 of chapter 1? Paul is so excited about trying to tell people who Jesus is, he can't just say it, he has to sing it. So he imports this hymn. Chapter 1, verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. He is. He holds all things together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. And everything he might be preeminent. He's just singing this out. So he's trying to battle against... Uh, This idea that the religious counterfeits that came in saying that Jesus wasn't supreme. He is supreme. In him, all the fullness of God dwells. Jesus says the same thing. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Verse 10. This is really a a stunning verse, especially on the heels of... Of verse 9. First of all, we see that Jesus is supreme, but then, and you, verse 10. Okay. In him, we understand who Jesus is. Now he's turning and says, okay, what about you? And you, you have been filled in him who is the head and the rule and the authority. You have been filled in him. If you've trusted in Jesus, you're full of his fullness. He's not only supreme, he's sufficient. If you understand who Jesus is, all the other things that you would want to hold on to fade away. Now, Jesus, as the God-man, he alone can uniquely hold all the fullness of God. And you and I can't hold all the fullness of God. But Paul wants the, the congregation in Colossae, he wants them to expand their understanding of who God is. He wants them to have a, a bigger capacity to understand who God is. He wants them to understand how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And, and this reality is, would be difficult to illustrate. But let's just imagine you're standing on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean. And you have a little 16-ounce cup. And you're standing there and a wave comes in and you scoop up some of the Atlantic Ocean and your cup overflows. And you could say, my cup is full of the Atlantic Ocean. And that'd be a true statement. But do you have all of the Atlantic Ocean in your cup? Well, no, you don't. What if you had like a five-gallon bucket? You could scoop up some more. But would it make any difference in what you'd see in the Atlantic Ocean? Well, no. You'd still be full and you'd have more capacity, but there's so much more to know. And that's what Paul is saying is you're full with the fullness. When you come to Christ, maybe you come and you just have a little thimble, but you're full. But he's saying, don't stay there. You get a bigger cup, get a tanker, get get something as big as you possibly can, because God's fullness continues to fill up your life. And he wants you to expand your capacity to absorb him. And that begins now and continues through eternity. It's not something that starts at your death. It's something that begins when you accept and trust in Christ. So from the Chronicles of Narnia movie, the first one, there's a song. And if you're familiar with the movie, you probably would know the tune The name of the song or the title of the song is can't take it in. And one of the lines in the song. Empty my heart. I've got to make room for this feeling. It's so much bigger than me. See, see, when you meet Christ, you have a heart that wants these other things. And the song is saying you've got to empty that out because something so much greater is coming. And you've got to empty that out because it's so much greater, it's so much bigger than you." And Paul's trying to say, "Something that's coming is so much bigger. Please open up your heart and soul for a expanded capacity to know who Christ is. Well, that's just our review. That's just our foundation. And we could stop here and talk about that for a long time, but I want to move on to what I want to get to in these uh, chapter two, verse 11 through 15. As we move forward, Paul's basically trying to answer this question. What has happened in our lives that we get to experience the fullness of Christ? He's telling us we've been filled, but then he's going to go back and say, let me show you how you've been filled. What's happened in our lives that we get to experience the fullness of Christ? And he answers it really in two parts, verse 11 and 12. We are full because we have participated in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ we are full because if you are a believer, you have already participated in the death, the burial and the resurrection of Christ in some way. We'll talk about that. verse 13 through 15, a second way to explain it. We're full because we're free from bondage and free from accusation. First, we're, we're full because we've participated in the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ. Notice Paul's words in these verses. In him, you were circumcised. Circumcision is a reference to crucifixion. In him, you were buried. In him, you were raised. Paul's describing a reality uh, that requires quite an expansion of your thinking. In him, he's done these things, and because you're in him, you've already experienced This as a reality, Paul informs the Colossians and every believer that that you have participated with Christ in his death, his burial and resurrection. First, he uses the word circumcision. And when Paul uses this phrase at the end of verse 11, the circumcision of Christ, he uses it as a metaphor for Christ's crucifixion in an actual circumcision. There's a great deal of pain and blood. And so he's taking this imagery, small as it may be, and he's trying to say, that's what happened at the cross. There was a great deal of pain. There was a great deal of blood in Christ's crucifixion. His, his body was cut away. It's painful. It's bloody. And in a small picture of where Christ died on the cross in a very bloody and painful manner. And then notice at the beginning of verse 11, he says, in him you were circumcised. And when he says you were circumcised, he qualifies what he means, your body of flesh, verse 11. Meaning at Christ's crucifixion, our old sin-dominated self was cut away. At Christ's crucifixion, our sin-dominated self, our self-centered way of thinking was cut away. And it's important to notice it's not by human hands. He's trying to make it very clear that that faith in Christ is what's needed to obtain salvation. It it can't be accomplished by any human effort. You don't need anything else other than Jesus. He's sufficient. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified, what does it say, with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Second, there's a baptism and burial. There's wide disagreement on exactly what Paul is referencing here with this word baptism. But I think he's not using it in reference to what we think is water baptism. I think he's using it as a word that means to be engulfed by or to be immersed in. And so what he's trying to say is that Jesus' body was cut away on the cross and he was completely engulfed in this tomb. At his burial. So it's a way to say that Jesus was completely dead. Everything that got paid for completely died. It's in the tomb. On the cross, Jesus took away all my sin. And in his death, once and for all, he put my sin to death. And I was buried with him. So if you're in Christ in a very real way, you've been, your old self has been cut away. It's been completely buried. It's dead. It does not have any more power over you. And finally, verse 12, we've been resurrected. The power of the work of God, which raised Jesus from the dead, is raising you from the dead in a brand new way. It's incredible. If anyone is in Christ, Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, what? He is a, he's a new creation. See, on the cross, you participated in the death of Christ, meaning your old sin-dominated self died. It was really buried. It's dead. And because of faith in Christ, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is now in and working in you. And you're a brand new person. You're a brand new creation in Christ. We don't have time to review it, but I think Paul's saying the exact same thing in Romans chapter 6, and you can go back and look at that. Well, let's try to circle back around to this idea of fullness after we just think about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. If you've trusted in Christ, that then in some important way, you've died, your sin's been buried, and you've been resurrected. You're a new person. You're a new creation. It's already occurred And because of that reality, sin no longer has its dominion over you. You now have a power because of Christ, because of the Holy Spirit, to fight against sin that you didn't have before. It doesn't have to have dominion. Because sin no longer has dominion, you and I are are not perfect, but we can truly begin to live a rich and full resurrected life. Last Monday morning, Liz Hunter passed away from this world into the next. And we were here celebrating, remembering, mourning, weeping her death on Thursday. Many of the hunters and family friends are here. But, but her eternal life didn't start on Monday morning. That's not when it began. See, see her life started at the cross... When in him, her old self was cut away, it was buried. And because of her faith, she already experienced a resurrection. And if you were here for a funeral, you understood she had a new life. She had a new power. She had a new influence on people that was already beginning to have its work. And so when she died and passed away on Monday, what she got was she went from some sort of capacity like this to an incredible capacity. She didn't begin eternal life there. She began it at the cross. When you go from this world in the next, you just get much bigger capacity. And see what? No matter how much you extend your capacity, God is bigger yet. And it starts now and continues through eternity. So if you're a Christian, your eternal life has already started. You just get greater capacity when you see him face to face. Verses 13 through 15. We're full because we've been freed from death and accusation. Verse 13. And you, you were dead in your trespasses. This this is a really unpopular verse in our culture. Because what Paul describes, not just for the people in Colossae, he's describing it for everybody. If you're disconnected from Christ, you're dead. You're not wounded. You're not imperfect. You're not deficient, damaged, or defective. No, you're dead. You don't have any capacity for life. You're dead. And see, if you don't really understand you're dead, then you start looking for a solution and not a savior. And so many people think, well, I'm wounded, or I'm imperfect, or I'm damaged, and they're looking for some kind of solution. And what Paul's trying to say, and what I'm trying to say is, no, you're dead. So what do you need? You need a Savior. You need somebody so much more powerful that can get you not from imperfection to perfection, but from death to life. And that's what he's trying to say we're dead in our trespasses. And, and like the picture in 1 Kings when Elijah, you might remember the story, Elijah comes to the widow. The widow has this one son. The son has died. And she can't believe her own, only son has died. And she comes to the prophet Elijah and says, anything you can do. 1 Kings 17, you can read it later today. He stretches his body out over the body of the dead boy. He puts his life, heart-pumping, warm body over this cold corpse. And what happens? That boy's heart starts to beat. That's a great picture of meeting Christ. God stretches his body over your cold, my cold heart. And then my heart begins to beat because of his heart. And because of that, then my heart beats for the things that his heart beats for. And I let go of the old mystical. And I began to live for Christ. I was dead. Christ laid his body over mine. His heart began to beat. So my cold heart began to beat. Verse 14. He canceled. He canceled your record of debt. This is incredible you ever seen the um, the debt clock? You know what I'm talking about? The U.S. Treasury debt clock. It's located in New York, I think, or somewhere. You can see it online. And you should go see it. It's really terrifying, honestly. But it's $18 trillion some, you know, billion, million, thousand dollars. And when you look at it, it says how much debt we're accumulating, you know, as you're watching it every second. It's a, it's a phenomenal rate of accumulation. Imagine $18 trillion worth of debt. It's a number now so big, it's not anything you can even really understand. And the speed at which it's gaining is incredible. And that's what your life is like without Christ. Your sin is piling up at such an incredible rate. It is so large, you couldn't possibly pay it off. And Jesus comes in with one check And it's all paid for. See, Jesus paid it all. Because he paid it all. All to him, not the ways of the world. I owe. He took all the little IOU receipts. He nailed them to the cross. And he paid them all. The song we sung at Liz's funeral. It is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but what? The whole. Was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Do you understand how freeing that is? See, the practical applications of understanding that my sin has been paid for. The guilt. I don't have to carry that around anymore. It's been paid for. I may have to carry around the consequences of my sin, but I don't have to pay uh, to haul around the payment for my sin. I don't have to pay it out. Jesus has already done all of that. He is supreme. And because he paid your record of debt and he provides resurrection power, he's sufficient. And when you are filled with the fullness of Christ, then he completely washes out every idol, every Competitor, every counterfeit. That's the gospel. I cannot explain it any more clearly than that. That's what we hold on to, that's what we believe in.